Welcome to the Woman of Wellness podcast, a show for the woman who wants to make peace with food, love her body, and find joy in exercise and movement. I'm Elizabeth, exercise physiologist and women's nutrition and wellness coach here to spread the message that it is absolutely possible for you to enjoy food, exercise, and your body without guilt, shame, or regret. To the woman who is fed up with dieting, feels trapped in a body she wishes she could love, or who lets food and fitness rules overtake her life, it's time to put a hard stop on diet culture and discover wellness within. My friend, you are already a woman of wellness. Your worth is more than a number on the scale. You are worthy of showing up in love for your body today and every day. On this podcast, I want you to show up as yourself, beautifully imperfect and gain confidence to accomplish anything you set your mind to. I believe that every woman has the gift of knowing what her body truly wants and needs within herself and I'm here to help you discover it. Join me each week for conversations about food, fitness, weight loss, and wellness to help you achieve your goals and love taking care of your unique body. It's a lie that wellness has to be hard, painful, and downright miserable, and I'm ready to link arms with you and experience the joy of wellness together. Okay, I am so excited for this episode today. I have Brooke and Alyssa Miller, not related Millers, <laughs> which we just found out here. They are registered dietitians here to help um, help talk to us about how to essentially model a healthy relationship with food and our bodies to our kids. And I have I have had this request for a while. Several of you have been asking me about, you know, how do I model a good relationship? What do I say? What do I do? And it's so funny because I was telling them before we recorded that I can do this all day with women all day long. But as soon as you bring the kids into it, I'm like, that just seems like a different level of psychology that I don't even understand or have an expertise in. And so I wanted to bring them on because they're the experts to share a little bit more with us about how to do that. So thank you so much for being here ladies. Ladies, will you, um, tell us a little bit more about you. So everyone kind of knows who you are. Yeah, sure. So, um, I'm Brooke Miller. That's Alyssa. And we just happen to be best friends with the same last name. Uh, we met about six years ago at our clinical dietitian jobs and we decided to start a podcast a few years ago, really dismantling dieting and the diet industry and like what we're hearing so many moms and women doing. And then it really transformed over the last year where we just realized helping moms and helping raise intuitive eaters is really the sweet spot and breaking the generational dieting cycle is where we thrive. And it's what we care so much about because when we get to help moms, it in turn helps their children become confident and intuitive eaters too. And so we've just seen so many women's lives transform and we've seen it go both ways. So we've had women in our program say, Oh my gosh, this has actually helped my picky eating so much by me working on this. And then we've had women who've taken a list table talk program, say the opposite, like, oh my gosh, this really opened my eyes to all of the things that I need to work on. And then they've come to our program. So we've just seen this huge overlap with moms and their children's and how we can model and raise, um, healthy, intuitive eaters. And yeah, it's just really, truly what we're passionate about. Yeah. Like, like Brooke said, so I'm Alyssa Miller, the other half of the Millers. Um, and just to kind of piggyback on that. So we created the Mama Wall Accelerator, which is a 30 day program for, um, really moms to start getting healthy without dieting, you know, getting all of that kind of diet mentality, unlearning it, relearning the healthy practices that bring us closer to listening to our body and tuning in. And, um, through that, and I was really passionate about pick eating. I was struggling with a pick eater at home. And I remember learning about it in school before I had kids. And I was like, Oh, this is so simple. Right. But in practice, no, not <laughs> simple at all. Right. There's so many ups and downs. And so I started kind of following that passion as well. And it was not very long that I realized these two things are way more connected than I ever imagined. And what I found was a lot of times picky eating is the first experience our kids have with feeling pressure around food, mm -hmm. trusting someone else, even if it's mom or dad to tell them how much and when, and, and all the foods that they need to eat to grow and develop. And it's kind of their first time 
looking outward instead of inward. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just realized this really close connection, like Brooke said, with our students and members inside the Mama Well, we realized that this was kind of an underserved community of exactly what you're saying. Maybe we can help the mom and maybe we can help the kids, but there really is this generational cycle when we see 80 to 90% of our members and students say, yeah, my mom was the one to introduce me to dieting for the first time to bring Mm -hmm. me to the Weight Watchers appointment or or meeting, I should say, yeah. uh, whatever the right word, I don't even know the right words anymore. <laughs> um, you know, and, and when they start to point to that, we say, okay, there's something here. And I think there's a way that we can actually help moms break this cycle for the kids. And, mm-hmm. and we're really passionate about that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Oh man, you fit right in around here. Cause that's exactly, you know, what we, what we talk about is kind of breaking that diet cycle. So love will that. you kind of start us off by what we've kind of identified is that there's some differences and some similarities, right? So, um, there's things that I can teach that we can teach the moms, um, that might carry over, that might be the same. There's also things that maybe need to be different in the way that we teach. So I don't know if this is like the best way to word this question, but what does it look like for a kid to have a healthy relationship with food in their body versus the mom, or is it the same? Can you talk to that? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I'm going to jump in here. Cause I get this all the time because a lot of times the advice that I'm giving, there's parts of it that seem really counterintuitive mm-hmm. to women who are trying to heal their relationship with their body. And I want to point out a big difference that a lot of us probably haven't thought about the goal with moms is to likely unlearn and heal parts of them that have been damaged. They've been told for decades that they need to diet and try this diet and cut out these foods and don't eat during this time. And you can't trust your body. And if you start eating, you won't stop, right? They've been taught this. And so there's a lot of beliefs that they're holding onto that need Mm -hmm. to be undone and reprogrammed. And that's a lot of work as you know, right? Um, And so there's a lot that we need to heal and break down, which lends itself to a little bit more, um, uh, of leaning into that freedom of relearning or, or kind of how I kind of describe it is at some point we're walking around in our life. And then all of a sudden there's this huge crater that is created by the world telling us we're not enough. You don't know your body. You can't be trusted. And we have this huge crater and then we're on the other side of it. And Mm -hmm. we can either continue going down this path of creating a bigger crater of losing touch with our body and kind of missing the point, right. And saying, oh, I need to keep dieting. I need to keep listening to other people. I'm just not doing it right. My willpower is not enough, all these things, Mm -hmm. or you can, you know, get help and really kind of go back to the beginning of where that creator was formed and go back to the place that you were originally, which was learning from your own body, listening to your own body, putting your own needs first and knowing that no one else can tell you when you're hungry, how much you need to eat, what foods you need to eat, that only you and you alone can do that. And the biggest difference here is that for kids, they actually likely haven't had that crater yet. Maybe Mm. a few missteps, a few things here and there that we can kind of tweak, but ultimately we're actually in the protective mode for them of protecting their innate ability to intuitively eat from when they're born. See most kids outside of extreme medical diagnoses are born intuitive eaters. They can actually, I mean, I'm sure we've all seen the videos of the babies crawling to find the breast, right? And then they nurse and they're done when they're done. They fall asleep. They turn their head. You cannot force feed a baby, especially with a breast if you wanted to. And that's Mm -hmm. because we're born innate intuitive eaters. And so what we're actually doing with kids is protecting that. Whereas with women or adults, we're actually having to actively heal it. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to piggyback. I think with kids, it's a lot of like, like you said, protection versus undoing. And for adults, I think so many of us grew up in a culture where our moms were dieting, our moms were doing slim fast, our moms were going to weight watchers. And so, um, there wasn't a lot of knowledge about body image issues. I don't think with, um, the generation above us, I think that there's more and more awareness now. And so I do think in the future, there is going to be a lot of generational shifts and changes. Um, so I, I do think that there is like a light at the end of the tunnel. I think that there is so much more awareness now than there was when our parents were dieting because our parents were going through the low fat movement and slim fast was, was just the normal thing. And dieting was praised. I would say even more. Um, I think it's obviously still going on in our society, but there wasn't the body, um, 
like the body positive movement at that age. So I do think there are some shifts and there are some really good things coming, but like Alyssa said with kids, it's more of that protective verse and like trying to prevent some of these things from happening versus adults. It's just so much undoing, unfortunately, which is hard. And the end goal, right. Does actually look the same. So to kind of circle back to Mm -hmm, what you're asking, mm -hmm. is it different? Is it the same? It's kind of both because the end goal is the same. And this is what I try to remind, especially my moms, uh, with that are struggling with thick eating is, Hey, what kind of eater do we want to race? Right. Mm. We, do we really care about the broccoli today or do we want them to eat broccoli for life and enjoy it and realize that it makes them feel good and gives them energy and all these things. Right. And helps move things along. Right. We want to raise a healthy, happy, independent, intuitive eater for life. And so many times we, and I fall in this trap too, with parenting all the time, we're just focused on today. We're like, no, 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 you Mm -hmm. have to eat something green. It's been like a month. You need to eat it today. (laughs) Right. And instead of this kind of like long vision of what kind of eater do we want to raise? We want to raise one that's afraid to try new things. We want to raise one that feels like they're good or bad based on their food choices. Or do we want to raise them to be confident, to listen to their body, to not feel like they have to ask someone else's permission. And and that's really kind of the end goal. So eventually we do want their relationship to food look the same as what it looks like when someone's been healed. Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of, kind of both (laughs) to get back to your question about that. And I remember when I had my first uh, baby, they taught me that kids ate in weeks. So like mm-hmm. you wouldn't expect them to eat, um, the same thing every day. And it's yeah. so funny because I get that as an adult, I'm like, Oh yeah, I have days where I'm hungrier and days when I'm not, but it didn't register to me that kids would have the same thing because as a mom, you're almost just like hyper-focused. Like we were talking about earlier, like sleep and, yeah. and behavior, like you're just feeling like you're trying to mold them in so many ways that it feels like, kind of this pressure to make sure they're doing all the things all the time. But when you talked about, you know, raising eaters, I was raised on canned beans, canned (laughs) peas and canned corns. Like we didn't eat anything else. And I now like I have my, I mean, it's just crazy how much more variety I eat. And I thought, you know what? I just needed some time and that's okay. Like it's okay to have that time. And I think it's really important to kind of identify that what you're saying is that there's time available to, for on both ends to help women heal from, from where they are and also time to help teach kids. And you're never too far gone. I think that's the message that you really wanted that you started with was like, you're never too far gone to teach Mm -hmm. these principles because there's always proactive teaching and there's also always healing available and they can come together. Absolutely. 100%. So what do you do then Okay. This is probably the question everybody has then. How do I begin teaching? How do I teach nutrition principles to my kids without incorporating the the diet mentality? And I think women especially struggle with this. Like, how do I start bringing nutrition into it without going back into diet cycle? Mm -hmm. How do you teach kids to do that? Such a great question. So I get this all the time too. So a lot of my kind of picky eating rules, it's had around two, right around there. And so this is the majority of my audience is a little bit on the younger side. And I I know you were kind of saying a little bit older. So, and it really depends on not only their age, but also their development, their Mm -hmm. levels of understanding. But I think Mm -hmm. if you're going to take one thing away from this is do not focus on the morality of food. Mm -hmm. Take the morality out of it. Take the labeling out of it. Anytime you feel yourself labeling food as good, bad, healthy, unhealthy, you know, grow foods. What's gosh, I always forget this one. People say grow foods or I forget the other ones, but you know, yeah, I, people say it all the time to me and I I forget it. I should probably write it down, but you know, it's, it's this idea of labeling foods. So first and foremost, we want to avoid that as much as we can. We're no one's Mm -hmm. perfect. Totally. I get that, but we want to avoid that. Then we also kind of want to come to the terms of there's not a lot to say to children who are like six and under Mm -hmm. six and under their brains are so black and white. They're just learning Mm -hmm. things and they tend to not be able to live in the gray, right? Which is what we're teaching Uh a lot of women to do. It's black and white. It's on or off. It's yes or no. And so the, the less, the better. And I always tell my moms, I'm always like, if the best thing you can do is just be silent during a meal, do that. If you can't keep yourself commenting on the food, it's okay to be silent. It's okay to talk about what we're going to do tomorrow and what books we're going to get to the library or whatever. You don't have to talk about the food. 
when kids start to ask questions or you feel like it's start, start time to um, introduce some of these ideas, the best thing that I always recommend is kind of focus on the colors or the attribute, attributes of the food, the positives, um, what this food can do for you even candy, right? This food can bring you energy. This food can bring fun into your life. Broccoli, this food can help you with a normal digestive tract, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so start focusing on the positives of the food rather than focusing on any negatives that you may think are there, Mm -hmm. um, is really helpful. And then as they grow older, you can kind of have longer conversations, but always keep it shorter and simpler than you think. Mm -hmm. Start with kind of the fun attributes and, um, and really even diving into like once they're six and older, giving them more autonomy around building their own plate and teaching Mm -hmm. them how to balance the plate, which is what we teach adult women, you know, Mm -hmm. or adults in general as well, and start teaching them that, okay, these are carb foods. These foods really help bring us energy and sustain us for longer and Mm -hmm. protein fills us up. And, you know, fat is really important for our brain development. And you can kind of keep it really simple and show them how to balance the plate is really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to piggyback off that. I think one of the biggest things that we can teach our kids is just variety, like having cupcakes in the house, but also having greens in the house. And if you're a household that like never allows cookies or chocolate or candy, our kids are going to go out in the world and they're going to binge on those things. Um, but we also want to make sure that it's not just cookies and candy in our pantry, that we also have, um, a variety of foods. So I think the biggest thing, and this is, is it doesn't even have to be a conversation. It's just filling your house with a variety of foods and offering different types of foods, um, different types of day. There might be a season where you make cupcakes and then you eat a cupcake every day until they're gone. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're making cupcakes for every single meal or every single snack. So I think variety at this age is really important. And then kids can start to, um, understand how these foods maybe impact them and having those conversations as they get older, like, maybe they didn't, didn't want to eat any of their meal. And then they just wanted a cupcake. Maybe they had two cupcakes and now they're like, mommy, I'm tired. My tummy hurts. That might be a good time to say, oh yeah. Sometimes like when we eat two cupcakes, sometimes that causes a tummy ache. Um, maybe next time we can try one and see how we feel. If we want more, we can have more. So, um, I think just like Alyssa said, keeping it super simple, but also just encouraging variety, different colors, different textures, cooking things in different ways, different spices, different seasonings. Those are some really, um, just easy things that we can do at this stage of life. Yeah. Yeah, Variety is so, so key. And it's fun for kids, you know, show them the rainbow. What foods can we pick from the red department and the green department and the yellow department and kind of build their own. And, and definitely, um, at the end of the day, the best teaching material we have is showing them with our actions, what it looks like on our plate, how we eat, how often we're eating. That really is what they're going to pick up on. We can say and do like, or say all the right things, but if we're not following it up by living the way that we're trying to teach them, Mm -hmm. it's going to fall on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, it's funny you would say that because I have one kid that's super picky. Like we've done some feeding therapy stuff with, cause I think he has some texture issues. Um, and then I have one kid, she like loves candy. She'll eat it all day long, but she'll also eat the salad if it's like on my plate, you know, and she'll, she'll like eat whatever I have. And, um, so it's really nice. Like I, I say, I worked really hard to get one of these because I had one that was really, really hard from birth. Um, so can we, I want to do a little bit of a scenario then. Because sure. I was thinking about this while you were talking, and I love these points that you brought up um, about like getting rid of the labels, which everyone around here knows how to do. Like we talk about that a ton here, um, mm-hmm. and recognizing the attributes and the positive things about it and how it impacts us and all of that. So, what would you say? Let's say there's a, a mom suffering or struggling with maybe, I don't know, like a preteen or a teenager, they're hungry and they, they notice that they're going more for the chips or they're drinking more milk than they like the moms are kind of seeing them maybe exploring. I don't like to say the word junk food, but do you know what I mean? Like they're seeing this kind of like they're gravitating toward these things. How might they be able to respond to that? Yeah. And I, I do want to point out too, and this is just a good kind of mindset shift for a lot of parents kind of actually bringing it back to how is this different? kids are growing astronomically 
And Mm -hmm. what that means for them is their carbohydrate needs are significantly higher than ours. And so a lot of times we see our kids gravitating towards carbohydrates and we've been taught in our culture, unfortunately, that, oh, carbs are bad and, oh, we shouldn't have too many carbs, right? Mm -hmm. Or any carbs at all, if you're following some diets. And I just want to remind the parents who are out there listening that kids actually need carbs because they're quick energy and they're growing like crazy. So you will see, especially if you're letting them trust their body, a propensity Mm -hmm. to reach for more, more carbohydrate foods. And this is where we can come in and say, Hey, with that, you know, bowl of chips, let's add some guacamole or whatever it might be to kind of balance it out. But know that that is 100% normal and expected. And in fact, their body's doing what their body needs to do in order Mm -hmm. to grow and develop properly. So just, you know, there is a shift just nutritionally speaking that they do need more carbohydrates. So Mm -hmm. if you start to kind of uh, witness this, this is where I would say to start teaching about balancing their plate. So there's, and again, the division of responsibility, which to go back to kind of the beginning, this is like the foundation that picky eating is um, placed upon when we're, when we're fixing picky eating is called the division of responsibility. Another dietitian came up with it, Ellen, Ellen Satter, whom I absolutely love. And basically saying we have different roles in the house and at the table when it comes to food for our kids to develop a healthy relationship with food. Our role as the parents, as we kind of teach them, and I, I kind of think of this as scaffolding because we're, we're building them up to be able to go out of the house and do this on their own. So we're kind of building that foundation, that structure, even that scaffolding so that they can have success later. Our roles as the parent is to control what food comes in the house and goes on the plate, what's available to them to eat, um, when they're eating and where. And then the child's role is they get to decide if they're gonna eat from the food that you provided, and how much of that food they're going to eat. So if chips are on the menu, chips are on the menu and they get to eat more, right? And this kind of shifts into the teenage years because of course we wanna be slowly passing off the autonomy to them, the decision-making to them, so that when they're out in like the real world on their own, they're not just like, wait, I have no idea. My mom's been preparing my plates for 18 years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We don't want that, right? (laughs) And so in this situation with teens who continue to grab the more carb heavy foods, kind of the play foods, right? is this is where the teaching of, okay, how can we balance this out? So it keeps you fuller for longer. And you can Mm -hmm. let them know, you know, kind of using it as an example, the, um, burning a flame, right. Or, um, setting a fire saying, Hey, if we throw gasoline on this fire, yeah, you might have a huge spike of energy and all of a sudden have a big flame, but it's going to die really quick. How can we make this burn for longer? And then you teach them, this is why we use fat. This is why we add fat in our food to keep us fuller for longer. This is why we add protein to Mm -hmm. round it out. And so you kind of help them. We're we're not shaming them or saying that this was a bad choice because it's not a bad choice to grab the chips. We're just saying, hey, how can we take this choice and elevate it to keep us fuller for longer? So they're not constantly raiding our pantry, which I've heard is a thing in teenage years (laughs) and that, you know, they're not burning through it so quickly that they don't actually ever feel satisfied. And again, the goal here is to get them to a place where they can feel their hunger Mm -hmm. and know how to satisfy it so that they're full and that cycle really continues. So that's kind of the goal there. Yeah. And I think at, you know, like the teen years, they are going to have a basic understanding of blood sugar balance. And that's where you can have that conversation of, Hey, when our blood sugar is not balanced, that's where we have some shifts in moods, especially like. I don't want to stereotype, but like 16 year old girls. Um, I don't know. I was like, I had a lot of mood swings at that age with hormonal shifts. And so just talking about like, Hey, like when we don't get this, um, when we don't get our blood sugar balanced, there might be a lack of focus when we're at school or trying to do homework. We might see some hormonal shifts where like maybe things, uh, give us some like low patients that we normally wouldn't deal with. And so kind of addressing the importance of blood sugar balance. And then like Alyssa said, teaching them how to stack their plate, but in a very simple way of, Hey, when we eat a meal, it's great to have carbs, protein, and fat. So you have some carbs on your plate. Maybe let's add some fat from guacamole with your chips. And not only does guacamole have fat, it also has fiber. So those things are going to help keep us fuller longer. Um, and it's going to help us grow, you know, big and strong and like keep those muscles from our staying nourished and fat is so important for brain development. So when we see kids like really restricting fat, that's where we see a lot of like brain fog and issues with like focus. So just kind of again, reiterating that fat fiber and carbs are all important. And ideally when we're building a plate, it's great to have all three. It's not going to happen every time. 
and snacks. That's great to have to, again, not going to happen every time. Um, but really encouraging them, like, what could we add to this plate? Um, that's going to just make you feel even better and, and give you that sustained energy. And especially for athletes, this is something like I was a high school athlete, college athlete. And this was something I noticed so much was when I wasn't eating enough, um, I would just burn out at practice and I would notice like I was extremely hungry on game days or days that we had like a ton of training. And so if your kids are athletes, especially don't be surprised if they're eating like four or 500 extra calories those days versus, you know, other days, like, don't be surprised if your teenager is hungrier than you. Um, it's very normal for them to feel extra hungry, especially going through puberty and these shifts. Um, they're just growing. And so I think it freaks a lot of parents out when they see their kids requesting more or eating bigger portions than them. But this is actually very normal, especially for really active teens. Yeah. And just to, um, kind of bring this full circle and give some tactical, um, advice, right. Cause I think so many times we can spend our time on the podcast, like talking about this abstract or these ideas or how we should feel and all these things, but like, okay, but tactically, how do I do this? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I just want to give the parents who are out there listening with maybe a teen, preteen, or even child aged, and you're starting to talk about these things, you can actually put a system in place. So going back to the division of responsibility, like I said, over time, you start to pass some of the responsibility off to them because you're building that scaffolding, right? So they can do it on their own one day. And so a great way to do this in your home as age appropriate is to start building lists with them. You want to include them in the process so that some of their favorite foods are included, right? But ultimately you're in, you're in control of what foods come into your home. And so build these lists out with them. What would be a balanced snack for you? Maybe for your home, you have, let's say a list on the fridge of like 10 balanced snacks that when they come home from school, they can put one of those together. Mm -hmm. Or maybe for you, you want to teach your child the different food groups and how they work together to form a balanced plate. So maybe for you, you have a list of proteins you regularly keep in the house, a list of carbohydrates you regularly mm -hmm. keep in the house, a list of fruits and vegetables and whatever it is. And then you can kind of either color code or let them choose, pick and choose one from each category or two from this category, one from this category, pick one, pick two, however you kind of want to structure that in your home. But I have found that a lot of parents really resonate with that because it's handing over some of the autonomy, which also takes the work off us, but it's mm -hmm. also actively teaching them and they're able to listen to their body and say, okay, what do I feel like today? Because everyone has different food preferences, right? You don't always want your mom to have to tell you exactly what to eat when you're 12 years old. You're like, mom, mm -hmm. I don't feel like an apple and peanut butter today, you know? And so it gives them some autonomy and some, um, some decision-making room, which by the way, builds confidence and value in, in their home, which just has incredible benefits just in the research, but it also still has you as the authority in your home where mm -hmm. you're still teaching them in a way that's really, um, building them up for long-term success, which is the goal. I love mm -hmm. that. And I think sometimes, I don't know, sometimes I get in my own head. I'm like, Oh, you don't even realize that you need to teach this stuff because this is something that we do all the time. I mean, sure, especially yeah. me, but like, you know, all of us are constantly thinking about food all the time. And sometimes I don't think like, Oh, my children don't have any idea They're They don't have any knowledge of what foods are they just yeah. know that they get fed. And so the more that we can teach them and sometimes we like, don't realize it's that simple, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So let me ask another, uh, tactical question, I guess maybe the, that's the word let's say, you know, you provide the meal. I know this is a big question. A lot of what a lot of mothers have, you provide the meal. And I know there's like a, a, a kind of a, rule is not the right word, but we're going to say rule where like you make sure that there's things at the table that they'll eat, right? Mm -hmm. Even if you're introducing new foods, there's always something available that they like and they're familiar with. So it's not just like, here's something brand new. And right. what, what do you do with the kid who, you know, eats the dinner, but there's still potentially more, but wants to like go throughout the rest of the kitchen. Does that make sense? Where like my son tends to do this where he'll, he'll kind of eat the dinner, but clearly he doesn't eat a ton of it. And then he kind of wants to raid the fridge after. And I kind of don't know where that boundary is of like, this is what's served versus you going for more. Yeah. This is a really great question because it 
ultimately depends on your family values. So mm-hmm. What's important to you? What do you want your child's experience to be? How do you want them to perceive the situation? What's it really interesting is in the research, when we give too much control too soon to children, they're actually way more afraid than if you were to have all the control which is Mm -hmm. really wild because Mm -hmm. kids actually, once you give over too much control, they don't know what to do with it. They haven't been given that scaffolding to make those decisions. And so in fact, just recently I was coaching a mom on this where she was letting her child just open the pantry and tell her what she wanted. And she would just like kind of give her things and similar situation would happen after dinner, after snack, she'd say she's hungry and then she'd want something. And she would just have all these decisions in front of her. And I think we've all felt decision fatigue, right? But this even goes further because it's actually telling these children, Hey, I don't know what to do with you. I don't know what to feed you. I don't know how to handle this situation. So I'm going to hand it over to you. And then they go, Oh, this is too much, too much power, right? They actually don't know what to do with it. So there's actually research to support that their stress levels go up. And so, and this is true for us too, right? Like just imagine, and okay. Some people are like fashionistas, so they love this, but for me walking into my closet and having too many options, it's overwhelming. And I'm already tired before I even think about it. But if someone were to hold up two outfits that were great, well put together, and I liked, and they fit me and they felt comfortable and said, which one would you like? Oh, so much more like release, right? Like mm-hmm. yeah. I can just choose one. So ultimately what I'm trying to say here is that's part of the division of responsibility is we're in charge of what's served, especially mm-hmm. during meal times. I recommend once you start to hand off these tasks of them deciding their meals and snacks or trying to put them together, kind of make it a collaborative effort. Like I said, maybe having some of those charts available, helping them or um, giving them options to choose either this or that. So they have a little bit less uh, control. And I, I know that sounds wild, but it's actually really freeing to them to feel like, Hey, someone's looking out for me. I'm still going to get fed. My needs are going to be met. And all I have to do is make this one decision. So in those instances of a meal, you're in charge of what goes on the table, what's being served. 100%. You always include a food that is what I call a safe food. And a lot of people confuse safe food with favorite food. That's Mm -hmm. not the point here is safe food is a food that they have reliably eaten in the past and they could fill up their belly on this food. Then I always kind of recommend one food that they're familiar with what I call a sometimes food and then a still learning food, maybe a stretch food for you. Um, so you can kind of include those as the day goes on, this is kind of getting a little technical, but that's kind of the goal so that they do have something that they can eat. Then if they continue, they're like, oh, I'm still hungry. They know what their options are. Here's what we have. We have these four things for dinner. Would you like more of one of those? And that goes back to the, if they eat it is their role, excuse Mm -hmm. me, if they eat it and, um, how much they eat it. So if it's bread that they're eating and they just are still hungry, well, you can continue eating bread if you'd like, if you don't want anything else that's offered. And Mm -hmm. that's, you know, I think a lot of us want to protect our kids so much from feeling hungry or feeling, you know, making a mistake, quote unquote. Right. And instead we look at that as a learning opportunity of them learning, you know, actually my body doesn't do well when all I eat is bread for dinner. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to experience that to know that, right? Yeah. I mean, we've probably all experienced that where we skipped a meal or ate ice cream for dinner or whatever the instance might be. And although we kind of had to deal with maybe some fallout of that, it was also a really great learning experience for us to then apply next time when we were given a new opportunity to eat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to always think about that because I was thinking about my daughter for Halloween because she's just like a candy addict. And I thought, I don't know if I am prepared to deal with the repercussions of her overeating. (laughs) Right. And I had a a mom who um, followed my advice about pig eating and Halloween last year. And she came to me and she said, oh my gosh, my daughter threw up. Oh my gosh, she ate so much candy. She threw up. And then three days later, she came back and she said, my daughter, I offered my daughter candy with a meal. And she said, I think I'm just going to have one piece. Cause when I eat too much, I, I get sick. And she yeah. ate one piece alongside her meal. And mm-hmm. listen, there's nothing right or wrong about how much we eat. We're all on the same page there, but that's the learning opportunity that we're actually robbing them of. If we say, Hey, you can only have one piece. Mm-hmm. They don't understand yeah. why. And so then they're like, my mom will only let me eat one piece. But when I'm at my friend's house, I'm going to go to town on candy because they don't have any rules and they're not going to learn those experiences where we can hold their hands through it and say, I know this is really horrible, but this is part of life. Right. Or at least in our head, we say yeah. that. That is, <laughs> yeah. Oh, 
Go ahead. Well, and we, I think, um, we, as adults, we get very disconnected from hunger and fullness. This is something that we see all the time where moms come to us and say, I don't even know when I'm hungry, I'm all of a sudden starving and then I'm eating the whole pantry or, you know, I don't even notice I'm full until I'm like, unbuttoning my pants, Thanksgiving full. And so I think it's really good at this age too, to like also bring awareness to hunger and fullness. So like if your kid is starting to notice like, Hey mommy, I think I'm starting to get hungry. Like, um, just bringing awareness to like, Oh wow. That's so great that you're acknowledging and like noticing your body and what it's telling you, because we really start to lose those. And it, it's not that those signals aren't there. It's just that we learn as we age, as we go on more diets to ignore hunger and we learn to ignore even like fullness signals. And so this is a cool age where there's going to be days where like Alyssa said, like there's going to be days where they don't eat a lot at dinner and they are hungry an hour later. And that's a good experience for them to learn what hunger really feels like, but also fullness. Like there's going to be days where they are like, Oh, I have a tummy ache. I ate so much and that's okay. Like we're all human. We're all going to eat past hunger or eat past fullness or eat, um, notice when we're hungry. And so I think it's just, um, really good to kind of instill that and bring awareness at a younger age, even through the teen years, because it's just so easy to lose that as we become adults. Yeah. I have a, uh, my food freedom program module three, we talk about hunger and fullness and honoring your hunger and fullness. And without fail, it's, it's usually the place where women get stuck the most, like mm -hmm. stuck from moving forward. Cause it seems so simple, mm -hmm. but we realize how much we don't pay attention to that, especially mm -hmm. in, in the busy world that we live in. And so I'm glad that you brought that to light because I, I don't think people are aware that that is like, crucial for being able to, you know, deal with cravings and all of those things. It's about meeting our needs. And so what you guys are kind of doing is bringing it back to this basic level of like, we're teaching our kids how to meet their needs and how mm -hmm. much more will that carry over into all areas of their lives. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so true. So one random question, do you have then like a I've heard like the two bites, no fights rule or try it, try one thing. Like, <laughs> what do you say to someone that's like, we've done this or you have to try this or, or what would your advice be? Yeah. I might, I mean, I always come from it, um, from a lens of complete respect of the mom, the parents, you know, what's best for your family, your home and your children. I will say the research is quite clear that when we have a polite bite rule or I, I, actually kind of like that two bites, no bites, but I wouldn't recommend it. The research is really clear that when we pressure our kids, not only is, are the foods that we pressure them to eat are less desirable to our kids, especially long-term, but also we're, we're kind of, um, overstepping those boundaries that I taught on before of the division of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And that's where picky eating starts to spiral. Mm -hmm. And I bet the listeners can really resonate with this, but it typically starts that way, right? We're like, Hey, three more bites, then you can go watch your movie. And then a few nights go by and we realize like, well, that worked. I'm going to do it again. Three more bites. Then you can go play with your friends, but then they're still putting up a bigger fight. And so then we kind of either raise the stakes or lower the standard. And we start to say, okay, fine. Just two more bites. Just do two more bites. Then you can go play. And they still throw a fight. And then you're like, okay, just one bite. Okay. Just lick it. Just let, just touch it. And then you can go play. Right. We kind of like lower what we're requesting. And then we, we like increase the stakes. I had a, um, someone that I was interviewing actually or she was interviewing me, I should say. And she was saying, Oh, I had this ice cream bar and we had all these delicious foods included. And he could put all his Halloween candy into the ice cream. And it was like all of a sudden this big night built around ice cream, but it was mm -hmm. only given to kids who finished their dinner or tried the bite. I forget what it was, but essentially we up the ante and we decrease what we expect from them. And it's a spiral that continues, um, to perpetuate inside the home and inside the family. And so really the pressure that we're creating just isn't worth it long-term. And mm -hmm. I think we would all agree that in an ideal situation, we'd probably all want our kids to eat broccoli because they want to eat broccoli, right? They like mm -hmm. broccoli, not mm -hmm. because we're telling them, Hey, two more bites. And really subconsciously what we're teaching them is, Hey, you don't know your body. I know your body and I know you need broccoli. Mm -hmm. And although that might be true on like a knowledge basis, what I try to remind parents is over time, the amount of broccoli they're going to eat in their life far outweighs the need to eat broccoli tonight so that mm -hmm. you can just kind of tick a box, you know, which is mm -hmm. 
sometimes hard to hear. I, it was hard for me to hear for yeah. sure. So I apologize to anyone who's listening to this, but truly there are gentle ways that you can encourage your child to like broccoli for life and not just today, um, which isn't as like shiny and attractive as mm-hmm. the tips and tricks that go viral on Instagram, but <laughs> it really is about building that foundation and building trust and, and relationship with you as well. I am 100%, um, protective over the relationship built between the parents and the child, mm-hmm. because that relationship and trust is what everything else is built off of. And so if we're tricking them, guilting them, begging them, pleading them, bribing them to eat foods, that trust is broken. That relationship is broken. Meals are no longer a place of connection and enjoyment. They're a place that's a battlefield, right? We've all mm-hmm. experienced that literally a battlefield where they might even be throwing things at you. And so instead, if we flip that and actually had mealtimes be this place of connection, can you just imagine where that could lead, where they would start to eat the foods you're eating and they Mm -hmm. would start to pick up your cues and they would start to be interested in what you're putting on the plate and helping you in the kitchen and, and building that relation, um, relationship and the, the pick eating also kind of subsides with it. There's a lot more to that, but essentially that's kind of the goal, right? Well, and you could put broccoli on their plate every day for eight months. And most of the time they might not touch it or they might throw it at you or they might feed it to the dog. But if they see you eating broccoli, they might be curious and they might taste it and then they might throw it. And then maybe the next time they take one bite and then, you know, like you just never know, like truly offering variety and just offering exposure, even if they don't do anything with it, it really makes a difference. I mean, we've noticed that with our two-year-old too. It's like we put the same food in front of him a lot. And half the time he just throws it or feeds it to the dog. And eventually one day he'll like randomly take a bite. And then the next day he won't touch it, you know? And so it's, it's just like, okay, well, we'll just keep offering a variety of foods and what we're eating. And sometimes he'll take a bite at it. And sometimes he won't. And at the end of the day, uh, we just don't want to force feed our kids or like, again, that's just building that trust, like the clean your plate mentality that a lot of us grew up with is you can't leave the table until your plate is clean. And what that instills in our our children is, okay, mommy knows better than I know of how much my body needs. And that's where sometimes it leads to like binge eating in the future or leads to eating past fullness. And we start doing it out of habit versus actually listening to when our body is full. So, um, we just don't want to create that pressure where we're like force feeding our kids to finish a certain amount, um, before they can like go play or get up from the table. And again, if they're hungry in an hour, they'll let us know they're, they're definitely will let us know. Yeah. Oh man. I just, I, it's interesting. You would kind of bring this up because I, I was thinking a lot about how, um, my son, I've, received a lot of pressure from the doctor because he was always zero percentile for mm-hmm. everything. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of like PTSD from it. And my daughter yeah. was the same. I make tiny babies. <laughs> They're teeny tiny. And I had, um, a doctor tell me, he's like, you have to stop nursing and start feeding her. And it was like complicated because I wasn't making anything. So it was like, she mm-hmm. was just like stagnant, but she wouldn't take a bottle. And it was just like, I don't even remember that year of my life. It was a disaster, but what, what would you say for some of the moms that are feeling a little bit of pressure with body size? I I think, I know that this is a hot topic, um, about, you know, overweight, underweight and charts and things like that. But what Mm -hmm. if there's just a mom that's like, okay, I've either heard it from my doctor that I'm concerned about something, or I'm concerned about it. And I, how can I, they have peace, I guess. Yes. Um, I'll speak from my own experience of having a child in the NICU who was premature, who needed open heart surgery, who slept all the time and didn't want to eat. And, um, there was a lot of pressure. I felt of, I need to get him to gain weight before his heart surgery. We really had to get him to a certain, um, pound ideally before he would hit three months for his open heart surgery. And so that meant for me, it meant exclusively pumping and, uh, tracking really every ounce. And that's not something that we would recommend for most parents, um, or most moms, but there is something called like medical nutrition therapy, where we do need to closely monitor certain kids intake to make sure that there's enough wet and poopy diapers that they're growing. Um, this might not look like exactly growing how the doctor wants them to grow. It might mean that they sit at the zero percentile 
for their whole life. But as long as they're following their curve, like that's the general rule of thumb. I mean, my son was also super short, um, underweight. I mean, we left the hospital at like still under five pounds and he never hit where the doctors, uh, and dietitians wanted him to hit. I mean, he just never did. I remember after open heart surgery, the dietitian in the NICU or PICU came in and said, I need him drinking this amount of, uh, breast milk before you leave. And I said, there's no way there's no way. Mm -hmm. And you know what? He had great output. He was still growing. And so they let us discharge and, at the end of the day, you have to go with your mom gut and instinct. So if your child is losing weight in those early years, that might be a red flag of something's going on. That might mean, Hey, we have to fortify breast milk, or we have to do a higher calorie formula. So there are some signs of like, our kids are, are losing weight. Um, they're dropping on the curve. I'm way more concerned if a kid is sitting at the 70th percentile forever and all of a sudden they drop down to the 10th percentile out of nowhere, then it's like, Hey, what's going on? Uh, is there some malabsorption? Can we run some tests? Can we see if there's something going on to cause that? But when a kid is just simply underweight and they're small and they're following their curve, as long as they're again, not like drastically losing weight or, um, like dropping on the curve, that's where we're not as concerned. And again, there are different medical conditions and issues that might, um, adjust weight. And then there's also some medications. So when my son was on diuretics, like right after open heart surgery, I mean, he was just straight swollen and fluid. And I mean, his like cheeks were so huge, but it wasn't that he had gained all of this weight. It was just simply fluid. So again, like cardiac babies, especially retaining fluid, it's just, it's like really nerve wracking to have a baby that you're concerned about and you want to see them grow and thrive. And when doctors are putting pressure on you and telling you that your kid's not gaining weight, it's really, really scary. So I would say definitely go with your mom gut. If your child is like continuously losing weight, that might be a sign of like, Hey, can we fortify this? Can we get more calories in them? Because like the issue with my son was he didn't have energy. He didn't even have enough energy to stay awake. And so getting even like 30 ounces of breast milk, like, or 30 mils. So like one ounce of breast milk in him took 10 minutes. He was expending all of his energy, just trying to take from a bottle. So there was no way he could even nurse at this age because that would have taken too much energy from him. Um, and so it was really about conserving his energy so that he had the energy to eat. And Alyssa and I actually, we were tube feeding dietitians for five years, you know? And so there are some instances where we need to put an NG tube through their nose into their belly. There might be instances where we need to put a J tube in their intestines or a G tube in their stomach, um, just to get them extra calories and nutrients while still, you know, if they are safe to eat orally. So there are, there are so many things we can do for our kids. If there is a medical condition, there are always options to make sure that our kids can grow and thrive. And again, checking lab values, but just a doctor blatantly looking at a child once and saying, Oh, your kid's underweight. You need to do the X, Y, Z, or your kid is overweight. You need, you need to do X, Y, Z. They're really missing the full picture. So from a clinical standpoint, we really need to look at so many, so many factors. And then if our kid is quote unquote overweight again, are they following their curve? Are they just always in the 90th percentile? If they are, there's, there's no issue. And if they're drastically gaining uh, an amount of weight, like really quickly. It's, it's maybe a sign or symptom. Hey, something's going on. Maybe let's check hormone levels. Let's check lab values. Like, let's just make sure we're not missing a diagnosis. And if not, if we're not missing a diagnosis and everything checks out, then that's where we can start bringing in things like, Hey, let's let's, are we getting enough variety on our table? Are we getting enough fiber and fruits and vegetables in our household? And we would never, um, tell one child that they can't eat a certain thing and the other children can, cause they're a different weight. It's really about introducing maybe more variety for the entire family. Maybe as our kids get older, it's just about instilling things like, Hey, let's go for a family walk. Let's go play at the playground. Let's bring in these really sustainable habits that can grow with us. But again, it's always for the entire family. It's never singling out one child because of their weight. Yeah. And, and kind of to just kind of round this out a little bit, right? Because majority of the time Mm -hmm. everything's okay. And so Mm -hmm. I just want the mom who's listening right now going, Oh my gosh, what do you mean? NG tube? What do you mean? What do you, what (laughs) my kid needs that? No, 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 no. Majority of the time they're okay. The important thing to remember about growth curves is that it's as if you 
picked out a hundred kids and put them up against a wall. Mm -hmm. And then you lined them up from smallest to biggest. There's nothing wrong with being on either side of those sides. And I think honestly for myself, we're like graded on percentiles, right? Like I got an 84%. I got a 72%. I got a 99%. Like we have this idea already in our head, especially in America, I'll say that at least that this higher percentage is better, right? There is nothing wrong with a 0% kid. Someone has to be the smallest and someone has to be the biggest. There is nothing wrong either direction. What Brooke is saying is that we just want to make sure that they're staying true to their own course, their own path. That is the most important thing that we can do as parents is make sure. And the next thing too, is it's important to know that kids don't grow on a perfect curve. They Mm -hmm. just don't. If you were to measure them every single day, which I do not recommend doing, it would look way more like steps than it would a curve. And so we're connecting over time. And this is why it's so important to kind of pull back a little bit and say, okay, what did their nutrition look like for the day instead of just for the meal? And what did their nutrition look like for the week instead of just the day? And what does it look like actually for a month versus just this week? Cause we can have a week where they're feeling sick, a week where they're teething, a week where they're stressed at school. The schedule is changing. They might have a week where they are growing like crazy and they have soccer practice and things might just shift and change day to day, week to week. So we really want to have this bigger, broader picture, but there are certainly ways that we can support our kids and getting the nutrition they need nine times out of 10. I see, um, if a child isn't gaining or, um, you know, even if let's say the doctor says, Oh, we're a little bit concerned here. Just like Brooke said, all that should do is raise a little yellow flag saying, Hey, do we need to look at something deeper? Mm -hmm. But nine times out of 10, it's that the child isn't getting enough eating experiences throughout the, the day. So can we add a snack? Can we add a bedtime snack? And then also there's actually a post on my page. If you scroll back on nutrition for littles of how to take the food that they are eating and boost it. So there Mm -hmm. are ways to increase typically their fat intake to help get them the calories that they need without saying, Hey, you have to drink this shake because the doctor said, if you don't gain weight, I'm not a good mom, right? Mm -hmm. None of those things are connected. And we say, okay, how can I support my child? And hustle? how can I fix this long-term? Not just so the doctor checks a box, like they don't have to go home with your kid. They don't have to feed your kid three times a day, four times a day, five times a day. They get to see them once every few months check a box and move on. Not to say doctors don't care. I know doctors care about your kids, but you're the one at home with them all the time. So Mm -hmm. you also want to ask yourself, okay, do I want to experience maybe a scary few weeks that I'm not sure they're going to eat enough. I'm not sure they're gaining enough, but I do know that this is going to set them up for success later, that they're going to be able to listen to their bodies, eat what they need and grow appropriately for them and their DNA and their genetics and their environment. Or do I want to pressure my kid to eat enough so that the doctor can say, oh, they're growing enough and then have bigger problems down the road. Mm -hmm. And I know that feels terrifying. And I have talked and counseled with moms in those moments. And that is the best to have a doctor who's really supportive, a feeding team that's really supportive, people that come around you and help you in these instances. But I think taking that longer vision view of it, of saying, okay, I want this for life not just for the next time I go see the doctor and how to set them up for that long-term success is, is really important to keep in mind as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think, I think, um, what it boils down to what you guys were kind of saying, uh, between the lines is that like, when we have maybe some kids that are, um, in certain percentiles, whether or not on a chart or not, like they may feel like their body is different than someone else's that it's, you know, the, the issue is that we don't really, we don't talk about our bodies in that way. We talk about like, okay, how can we take care of them? You know? And, and I love that thought because I think, you know, like young girls might see this and they might compare and, and starting to learn like, well, yeah, like I'm meeting my body's needs and that's good. And my body's good where it is right now. Mm -hmm. So this this conversation I feel like could go on all night, right? It's so fun. And I love learning from you guys. Let's say there is kind of an overwhelmed mom out there (laughs) that's like, okay, this is all really good information. And I've got kids that, you know, like school-aged kids that I'm trying to teach and I'm trying to work on kind of, I'm trying to work on my relationship with food and I'm doing pretty good. And I'm trying to model to them do you guys have any, like maybe three steps or two, whatever number of steps, I don't care that, um, you could kind of give the overwhelmed mother who's trying to teach their kids this 
to get started? What would you say? What would be like your top one or two tips, each of you? Well, I've already said one of them. I think it's just offering a variety and that's when it comes to food, but also when it comes to like movement and just overall, like being a healthy individual, it's not a one size fits all approach. And so really like leaning into experimenting and see what, what your kids enjoy, you know, rather than forcing your kids to exercise, give them options and see what they thrive with, see what they enjoy. And then same thing with food, bring them in the kitchen, offer a variety of foods, cook things in a different way, get different spices on there. Um, and let kids experiment that way. That just brings an element of fun into health. And at the end of the day, being healthy, um, again, it's not one size fits all, but it also can be really enjoyable. And we want to teach our kids that eating shouldn't be out of punishment and movement shouldn't be out of punishment. We shouldn't move our bodies to, you know, punish it for what we ate. We want to move our bodies because it gives us energy and it helps us live longer and it's fun. So I think just offering a variety in, in a lot of different aspects is really key of that. Yeah. I think, man, I could list like 15. <laughs> I know like if I could just leave everyone with a few things, the first one would be if you can, and when you can incorporate family meals as often as you can. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by family meals is not this big, like, Oh, get the tablecloth out and put out the China. I'm talking like you and your child eating together at the same time, preferably the same food. And it doesn't matter if you're a single parent or you have a co-parent or how many parents are there or whatever, there's one parent and one child as a family meal. So as often as you can do that, the more, the merrier, the whole family. Great. But as often as you can do that, so, so important. In fact, the mm -hmm. research shows that family meals trump what's on the plate plate when it comes mm -hmm. to the importance of the situation and how they're going to grow up as eaters. So family meals above all else, <laughs> preserve mm -hmm. that versus worrying about what's going on the plate. What's not going on the plate. Are they asking for more of this? What's not focus on family meals first. That would be my first thing of advice. And especially if you're working on your own relationship with food, that will spill over to them because you're just simply modeling it in front of them. And that is enough. So mm -hmm. surely that's the first thing. Hopefully that lets you kind of take a deep sigh of relief of saying, okay, I can tackle that. I can add one more family meal to the docket each week. Um, the second thing is to invite them into the process. So invite your kids into it, no matter their age. Truly. I started cooking with the baby on my chest when she was like six days old. I'm like, okay, let's stir this pot. Let's get in the kitchen, bring them into the kitchen, bring them into the planning process. Let them choose a few things, hand some things over to them as they grow older, let them cook for the family one night a week, get them involved in the process, teach them what you're learning and be really open and transparent with them. You do not have to show up perfectly. In fact, you will not, and you will drive yourself crazy trying to show up perfectly. Mm -hmm. And all we're looking for here and really what Brooke, <laughs> Brooke and my mission is, is to say, Hey, let's just shift the needle. Even just 1%. Here's what we grew up with around the table. And here's what we want our kids to grow up with around the table. We don't have to do it perfectly and we can't anyways. And so instead let's pass down what we do know, admit when we make mistakes, talk about it, talk through things that we wish someone talked through with us and really just saying, I can just shift this a little bit. And then my kid gets to pass the torch to their kids and continue on. This process is never done with generational cycles, right? We can't just fix it. I know for a fact that my kids are going to grow up and end up probably in therapy talking about something I did wrong. So just know that. All right. We always joke yeah. in our home, like, Oh, put that in therapy. There, the therapy book. Mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Brooke, knows it. Brooke knows we have this joke because it's true. Every, no one gets out unharmed because we're all human. So, mm -hmm. um, have a ton, a ton of grace for yourself. Yeah. I love that. Well, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I think, I think everyone's going to have like some aha moments. This is what I love about these is that everybody gets their own aha moment and their own yes. pieces from this. So let's, I, we want to know, obviously you have your own podcast, which is amazing. And tell us a little bit more where everyone can find you, um, to learn more. Yeah. So if you search the mama, well podcast, you can really find us wherever you listen to podcasts. And then on Instagram, we are at the dot mama dot well, 
Um, and then we also have a free mini course, so we can have you link that in the show notes. And this is really for moms who are just wanting to feel more balanced with their health. And a lot of it just dives, dives deeper into things that we talked about on the podcast too. So we talk about really balancing stress hormones, bringing in some movement that feels good, balancing our plate, um, the self-care. So we kind of cover all of that in that free mini course. Yes. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining me and, and just bringing light to such a a conversation that was needed. So I really, really appreciate you guys. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. We so appreciate it. Okay. My friend, if you love the woman of wellness podcast, did you know that one of the biggest ways you can say thank you is by hitting that subscribe button and leaving a review. This helps the women that need this message have more of a chance of seeing it. And if these messages speak to you, why not share the love? I genuinely care what you think of this podcast. If this particular episode resonated with you, just copy the link and send it to a friend or share it on social media. Make sure to tag me at a woman of wellness and I will be sure to send my love right back. And while you're at it, just come hang out with me on Instagram. I share lots more support over there as well. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for being here. I absolutely mean it.